This is an ABC podcast. Midnight madness in Melbourne. Oh, these rallies. Wow. Ridiculous. What a shot. Just when you think you have seen it all. Welcome to the ABC Tennis Podcast. We are at Rod Labour Arena. As always, I'm joined by John Alexander and John Millman. We are looking down at the court right now. And guys, please explain what's happening. It looks like there is some court maintenance happening. It's like they're trying to patch up the back of the court. What's happening here? It takes you back to the days of Kuyong, which were not the best grass courts. And sometimes when players would drag their foot and make a hole in the court, the groundsman would get out with grass clippings, put it in the hole, get this big ram thing and stamp it down. Look good until the hit-up started, just totally evaporated. But what's happened here, the surface has an imperfection in it. Somehow moisture's gotten under the surface and it's bubbled up. And we've commented during the week there's been some bad bounces in that area. And when the players get a bad bounce on a perfect surface, not happy. Not happy. It just looks like they look confused, as in... I'm, I'm wondering, how do you patch up a court like this without replacing some of it? Yeah, well, I'm no expert, but it's not abnormal. We do see court maintenance repairs happen to a variety of hard courts. US Open a couple of years back had all sorts of problems with bubbling in the courts. Now, I'm, it's definitely not that extreme because those bubbles were really visible to the human eye. But yeah, look, they're, they're out there. They're on all, hand, on all fours, aren't they? Knees and toes and micro surgery. And <laughs> it's, it's not major surgery. They're, they're down trying to finesse it back and uh, just cement it up, patch it up. Good news is, is they've got a bit of time between the now and when first matches are on. They do. I I'm think sure we need to visit out. after the pod and just find out what's happening down there. So much to talk about today. Can you believe it? Day 10, it's quarter final day. Yesterday, some of the men's biggest names went through so easily and that's where we start because Carlos Alcaraz and his level of confidence he defeated Miomir Kecmanovic 6-4 6-4 6-love but it was his post-match interview that really caught everyone's attention he was asked how well he's playing well I think everything uh, he did uh, <laughs> I did uh, everything almost uh, perfectly. Uh, yeah, you said in, my, in Miami in 2022, it was uh, really close there, the match, uh, high, high level from both parts. Uh, I think today it was, uh, it was a pretty good match as well. But uh, yeah, as I said, I uh, pushed uh, him to the limit in every ball, in uh, every point. So with Carlos Alcaraz, I will say he is so good at speaking English. So I'm not saying he's not amazing, but he's young. English is his second language. I feel like part of that when he says I did everything well, I played perfectly. It's definitely true. But how unbelievably confident is that kid? I call him a kid. He's 20. And there's a lot to be confident about because... If you were watching, you are watching one of the really great players starting to emerge. He's already won two Grand Slams. He did it at such a young age, but I was super impressed with the improvements that he's made. 
and it's not something technical or anything like that. It's it's his weight of shot. It's his confidence around the court. He is looking like a real force to be reckoned with in that bottom half. And I'm just unsure if anyone can match it with him until the finals. Uh, no, I'd have to agree. We, uh, it was absolutely just spot on. <laughs> Everything went well. But that would have been his inner thought was, you know, I practiced this, I practiced this. And you know, after the match, you think, well, that didn't quite go well. I'll go back and do a few more of those shots. But he's just sort of gone, no, everything went great, you know, in his innocence and in his, you know, second, third or fourth language. Uh, no, I thought it was, you know, I think he's fantastic. He cannot be faulted. He's a great young man, great athlete, and what a tennis player. And uh, just when you thought things would go a little dead after the three greats of all time sort of, you know, starting to disappear, Djokovic hanging around a bit longer, uh, here's this guy that's going to carry the next next generation. It's always doom and gloom, isn't it, when a generation finishes or is on the way out. And I remember the words when Sampras and your Agassiz were about to move on and everyone was going, oh, men's tennis, it's, it's gone. Tennis is gone. And then we got three great champions come through in Novak, Rafa and uh, Roger. And then we started to hear those whisperings again that, oh, we're really going to go through a bit of a slump, but... We've got some really exciting players, and Alcaraz is leading that charge. Obviously, we've got Yannick Sinner, who I'm sure we'll talk about later. But they say that Alcaraz is a combination of those three greats that have just gone through us. Novak's still playing, obviously. Don't want him to hear us saying that we've written him off because he's still my pick for the tournament. But they say he's a combination of all three of those, and you can see that, can't you? He's got that tenacity, that heaviness from the back of the court that... We see, um, we see Rafa have. He's got that all-court ability. He comes in, he finishes off, off the point like Roger, and his movement is out of this world. And someone who has unbelievable movement is Novak. So, yeah, he's exciting. He is super exciting. I think in, in the years coming, I think broadcasters are going to love him. I think television companies are going to love him because he is box office. Loyalty is a great thing, Tron. I'm glad you're sticking with your pick. I'm but glad you're sticking, I, but I, I feel like he's sticking, but then everything he's saying is indicating that you think Carlos Alcaraz would beat Novak Djokovic if the final were today. Yeah, but the final's not today. You know, Novak's been building, <laughs> hasn't he? I mean, he was super impressive in his last match. Um, he's building. He knows how to win this tournament, and... Not one other player in the draw in the men's that's remaining knows how to win the Australian Open. But just going back to your point of a combination of those three, I think that's a perfectly put. But then he's got a, a greater weapon. He's sort of got something more than those three. His dynamic hitting of the ball is on a, even a bigger scale, which is hard to imagine. Yeah, and, and when I was commentating him against uh, Jerry Shang, so two matches ago... You know, I thought, well, maybe his serve isn't quite as big, but it's a really heavy serve. And, and, and then he started, and then I start looking at the clock and, and uh, the speed gun, I should say, and he's dropping them at 210, 212, 215 kilometres an hour. And I thought, no, nah, it's big enough. He, easily. But the, the phenomenal thing about his serve is his second serve. And when he played uh, Medvedev at uh, Madrid... His second serve, Medvedev stands back, and then he was moving back further for the second serve. Yeah. He was coming in and drop volleying, a beautiful combination. But his second serve's got so much jump on it. Yeah, it's a real heavy serve, and I think that's a product of the environment he grew up on. Obviously, he grew up on those heavy Spain, Spanish courts, um, and I think that really develops that kick serve. It's so receptive on the clay, and 
obviously quite receptive on these Australian Open courts also. It's got to be depressing for guys like Alexander Zverev. You talk about the new generation is here. There was this other generation that everyone was calling the next gen and everyone was saying, well, Alexander Zverev is the next big thing. Now he's fighting it out in a five-setter. You commentated this match, John. Going to a super tiebreaker, which I would suggest is the worst preparation for taking on Carlos Alcaraz in a quarterfinal. Well, going across the men and women matches yesterday, I think this was the highlight. This was fantastic quality from both players. Cameron Norrie, I felt so sorry for him because he got it right to six all in the fifth set playing inspired tennis and then just played a bit of an, a lacklustre match tie break, a few errors, probably was a little over-aggressive, but He'd done so well to taking it to Zverev. It's the most aggressive I've seen him. He was using his drop shot, because, which will be really effective for Carlos Alcaraz because Zverev finds himself so far back behind the baseline. But Zverev, look, a lot of people, when he burst onto the scene, was saying that, you know, how many Grand Slams would he win? So he'd be a little bit disappointed that he hasn't notched one up yet. I still think he can. I think he's still not quite at his best post that bad ankle injury we saw. I don't think he's quite at his best, but he is building. I mean, he's six in the world and he'll be going up the rankings pretty soon because he lost in the second round here last year. He's playing a quarterfinals match. He has got the ability to outserve anyone. He's got a massive first serve. We've seen him increase his speed on his second serve up 22 kilometers an hour from last year. I think it's become a lot more reliable. It held up the test throughout that tiebreaker, uh, that deciding set tiebreaker. So he does have that ability where if he can race through service games and outserve Carlos Alcaraz and take those one or two chances, you'd be silly to write him off. But obviously Alcaraz is the hot favourite going into that match. Did, did he have yips on the second serve? He had a second serve issue for a while where he was just seeing phenomenal number of double faults. Yeah, look, uh, I don't know if we call it yips, but it's obviously something that was going wrong. I always thought that he would let the ball toss drop and he was trying to impart a bit of kick which is normal, but for a guy who's six foot six, unless you're really accelerating up the back of the ball, it's really hard to actually get that ball going up off the strings and coming back down. Whereas some of those taller players like your Isners, they'd toss it out and they'd almost do a bit of a hybrid, you know, a kick slider. And obviously, um, when you're watching Alexander Zverev, he's not trying to get that true kick now. He's actually tossing it out a little bit. He's getting that little hybrid happening and it's a really effective serve. He's throwing them down at about consistently about 165 to 168 kilometres an hour. And it just looks a lot more reliable. It looks like it's holding up under pressure. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. Afterwards, in the on-court interview, it was really funny because they said to him, oh, and it's your dad's birthday, and his whole face dropped and grimaced. Isn't this a good birthday present for your dad? And he just had to say, I forgot my dad's birthday, and his dad's there in the stand. It was an evening match or finished quite late. So the dad's like, hmm, I'm not sure the dad was that impressed. What's the worst thing you two have ever forgotten because of your tennis commitments or your now commentary commitments, and how did you get out of that? Gee, I need, <laughs> I need some time to think about that. But I need Be some careful. time to rank. There's a lot of mistakes that have been made. Uh, As I've gotten older, I forget more and more things. Just yes, the other day, I left there's... my accreditation. Then I had to go back up and get my bag out of the car because I left that. So I'm not sure. I don't think I've 
miss too many major things. I was late for a doubles once and got disqualified. That was pretty bad. As you should be. Oh, well, goodness. Who was your doubles partner? John Fitzgerald. Oh, and, you sorry. It, you stood Fitzy up. Yes. In my defence, the evening matches had started at 7 o'clock each night. So I've got it worked out. Yeah, I'm playing you know, 8.30, something like that. And this night, they hadn't posted the draw the night before, but they decided to start the matches at 6 o'clock. So I was an hour off. And you just had to go out for dinner and it had to be no, no. five course and it had to have matching no, no. This, wines. This, this, We've all been there. No, no, no. It was cold, dead sober. And so even more to blame. <laughs> Officer, I couldn't say sorry. I was intoxicated at the time. But, yeah, so that, that was <laughs> the most Betsy. embarrassing thing. You turn up and there's an exhibition match on and you think, what's going on here? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, no, that's and, a bad And one. I got fined for the only time in my entire career for for being late, so I didn't get the prize. Oh, that's the worst. The have you been fined? Groveling to the referee's oh, office. Have you ever been fined? Yeah, I have. For what? I have. I probably can't say it. You can. Here. It's just us. Well, it sounds like bad language to me. Yeah, yeah it was somewhat of a frustrated gesture. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in, in, in my day, you got away with all that sort of stuff. I mean, there was all sorts of uh, oh. funny things uh, that happened. There's uh, you know, people putting headlocks on, going to shake hands at the end of the match, putting a headlock on the opponent, dragging him over the net, uh, smashing balls at each other during the match. Now, that's a match Long that I would uh, watch. They, no. well, yours wasn't to that extent, John, no? No, but, yeah, frustrated gesture. Um, How much did I, that cost you? Oh, a fair few, few thousand. Oh, but yeah, in, in the context, I think it was at a challenger too. Like absolutely no one watching. You know, sometimes these referees they want to come down hard on you. My good record, my good behaviour record, didn't count for naught. Oh. I did the grovelling, but it didn't work. Oh, that is tough. Oh, so tough. Okay, let's move on to Daniel Medvedev, who I imagine has had many chats with referees. Now, we love Daniel Medvedev, but he's so expressive on the court. And he is through to the quarterfinal where he'll take on Ubert Hurakach. He went through in four sets, 6-3-7-6-5-7-6-1 six, against Nuno Borges. He looks really relaxed. He is on the court after the match doing a masterclass on how to return. I'm just really struck by how the big names are just so relaxed at this tournament. I want to ask you guys, is Daniel too relaxed? Does he absolutely want to win like nothing else exists? Because I get that off Novak, of Carlos. He's a guy who defeated Novak Djokovic to win a US Open. This is in the era of the big three. He wins that Grand Slam and he just does the dead fish. I'll never forget that moment. So Novak Djokovic is going for this incredible record, which he's always chasing. He's sobbing. He's doing the dead fish. What sort of character is he? I love watching Daniel Medvedev play because it's unexpected what he brings to the court. Um, he plays a different style of tennis. I think quite the opposite. I think when he's in the battle, he's not relaxed at all. Like he can go, he can get really fired up at his coach's box at himself. But he has that ability, and probably the reason why it didn't affect him so much finishing at four o'clock. He has that ability to switch off. When he finishes his match, he has the ability to switch off, be happy. Um, that masterclass, which I watched uh, just before having a shower, actually, I, it just popped up on my phone last night, and I was intrigued by it. It was incredible. 
He's obviously one of the best thinkers out there. He's a great problem solver on the court. But in terms of being too relaxed, no, I think, I think you really see his competitiveness come out when he's in the battle. But as soon as it's over, uh, he has great perspective on, on life, on tennis. Um, and I love watching him. I love that variety that he brings. And he's really, really genuinely funny. He's quirky. But you can imagine there's so much tension when they're playing and he's battling like anything to win. He's expected to win. And the moment it's over, you can just see his release and he goes straight to humour. He goes straight to, to being very, very funny with Jim Courier. But I think his explanation was found in truth. And he said, yeah, I was having trouble against these big servers. So I started standing back and then they served bigger. And so I stood back further and I could get the ball back into play. And then he explained it how it suited his game, that it wasn't just a block return. He could take a full swing and get fully into the point on the return of serve by standing so far back. But against Borges yesterday, he was so far back and he was, during the rally when he was receiving serve, he was staying so far back and having to cover an awful lot of territory and not being able to penetrate at all. But as the match went on, he seemed to play up a little bit more. And, and that's, that's the thing. Playing up, not playing up, but playing close to the baseline. Just no, I got that. I got that. <laughs> But no, and, and as a tactic, if you do stand that far back on the return, your biggest objective after you hit the return is try to take a more aggressive position. And obviously he wasn't doing that quite as well yesterday. He even admitted, look, I'm, I'm vulnerable to that drop shot, but you have to hit it pretty well. Unfortunately, if he does end up finding his way to, uh, to Carlos Alcaraz, well, Alcaraz has probably reinvented the drop shot. He's brought it, reintroduced it back into the game. Uh, a lot of players are now trying to emulate that shot from Alcaraz. He's got one of the best in the world. So maybe we'll see him adjust his return position. I'm not sure, though. Well, one of our favourite stories, Arthur Kazoo of France. He's out. He lost to Hubert Hurricatch, 7-6-7-6-6-4. But speaking of being open and honest in press after, just like Daniel Medvedev is, he revealed that he had really bad gastro in the build-up to his win in the last round, which was over Talon Griegspor. He said his bathroom was a mess. I'll leave it there. Have you ever gone on court after having extreme gastro? I mean, I can barely get out of bed. I think there's certain areas of your house you just shouldn't leave in case of an incident. <laughs> So, Cal like, I've had it recently, can you tell? Calcutta, 1974. And, and one of the problems playing in, in India is that you get the Delhi belly and you can get it in Calcutta. And uh, the car came to pick me up and I got up to go and I thought, oh, I just need to go to the bathroom. And <laughs> Half an hour later. Bathroom and then I got to, almost to the door and had to go back again and got to the lift, had to go back again, got downstairs, had to go back again and... And then, you know, we had these pills called dynamite pills, that tiny little pills that we took. They sound good. Yeah, walking what out do they the court, do? You know, coming back again, and then finally got onto the court, and <laughs> I managed to do the distance. There's certain tournaments around the world where you know, oh, you're flirting with danger here. Yeah, you know, but you just love the food so much so, that you eat it anyway. Some of the players uh, back, back in the day when it was the Chennai Open, some of them, you, you know, you had to be careful there. There's now challenges in India, and I know, speaking to some of my colleagues, they've gone there and had an absolute nightmare. I've had problems in Acapulco, along with a lot of other um, players in that tournament. That's you know, a different problem. Oh, no, because I isn't Nick oh. Kyrgios famous for saying that 
in that tournament, every player goes out every night no. having drinks. Well, and that was, was that, sorry, he's hung over well, in the gastro well, area. I think he's not every player. I think he uh, probably flies that flag. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Is that Chiquilaville? Ch- oh, oh like yeah. Apparently yeah. Apparently it's, it's a great tournament. Look, it's yeah. a great tournament, but... Yeah, a lot of players get a little bit crook. The water there's not amazing. So you said they weren't drinking the water; they were drinking something else. Apparently, yeah. I yeah well, out. I missed the invite. Well, all I can say is our producer Lauren and I, Acapulco—that's number one on our list for the ABC Tennis Podcast to travel to. Let's look at the women's side of the draw. There is a star emerging. When I say emerging, I think she's the 12th seed. I mean, she's a star already. King Wenjen, she defeated Océane Dodon of France. Six love, six three. That half of the draw is just wide open. It's such a huge opportunity for her. A really funny story about Océane Dodon of France. She is being coached by her boyfriend, who's never played tennis, because her dad got a new job, I think, and wasn't available to join her on the tour. But her boyfriend is a firefighter in Montpellier, and he's run out of annual leave. So the key message is, if you're in Montpellier right now, make sure the batteries in your fire alarm are topped up because they're down a firefighter. And she's been really funny about it, like saying her boyfriend's getting better. I've been with him for five years. And this just blows my mind, how this scenario happens. And what a tournament. What a tournament for, for her. I know she went out to King Wen and but what a tournament. She's ninety five in the world. She's in a round of sixteen. I'd be telling my boyfriend you gotta quit firefighting duties and join me full time on the road. Something was working. Or wouldn't mm, yeah, what I don't do know. What do you think, Jay? That's a recipe for success. Yeah, I was just thinking incorrect thought from a song <laughs> from the sixties, uh so I can't say that. Yeah, it's <laughs> good. Come always, on, baby, light my fire. Yeah, and, always. Uh, obviously, that uh, <laughs> the uh, support is bringing her to new heights. Try to set the night on fire. That's the next lyric. But you're impressed with that. Would you allow that? You, your partner's great. She cuts your hair. Would you allow? Would you take encore coaching from that area of? your player box, John? If, if it works, I need every help I can get. If it works, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, that's just the well, best tournament that she's had as far as yes. I'm aware. I don't think she's been into a fourth round before, so yeah. I'd be telling Dad to stay at home. <laughs> well, gen- generally, it's best to separate church and state. Church is family. State is your coach. Let the coaches coach. Let the parents be parents, especially when they've got young players coming up. It could lead to some interesting times if your partner is your coach, but that happens. Diana Yastremska, she defeated Victoria Azarenka in straight sets. And Alina Svitolina, this is really sad. She had to retire to Linda Noskova. Now, you see some retirements where you almost feel like, the, I'm not saying the player knew they were injured when they go on the court, but there's not that shock and surprise. She was devastated. She could only play three games. She went off the court crying. I was in the media centre and she got out of the lift 
visibly upset on the way to press where she had to go and explain that she felt she had back spasms. She didn't think it was really serious. She was just devastated. And I don't know, I can't help thinking about Alina who is dealing with a lot off the court. She wrote a column for the BBC about the fact her elderly grandmother still lives in the Ukraine, lives on the top floor of an apartment, refuses to leave, but can't even use the lift in case she gets stuck in the lift and there's an attack. And I just don't know how these players cope with that worry while they're trying to play a tournament like this. And it's funny, isn't it? Because you get so many keyboard warriors that will be abusing you after a loss and giving you death threats because most of the time that they've bet money on you and lost and they have no idea what's going on in the personal lives. Now, what's going on in my personal lives after a loss is nothing compared to what's happening with our Ukrainian players on tour. But it goes to show that you can't just take a, a, a match for, for what it is, just what happens on court. There's so many other external factors that, that can affect you. And, yeah, super sad, though, for, for Svitolina in general because since she's given birth and returned to tour, she's been an incredible player. I think she was trying to make her third quarterfinal in the last four appearances from the Grand Slam. So she's been in a really rich vein of form. And she would have seen this draw and gone, you know, a lot of these top seeds, you know, your Sviateks, your Rubakinas, a lot of these players are pulling out or, or out of the tournament. Like there is an avenue to Grand Slam glory that I haven't, you know, experienced before. So she would have seen it as a great opportunity. Noskova's a very good player, mind you. I, I think that she's potentially a Grand Slam winner in the future. But, yeah, I think this is a, a moment where Svitolina, you could tell her disappointment because I think that she believed that perhaps this was her chance at Grand Slam glory. Death threats, John. Oh, After yeah. losing a game, how many death threats? And what happens? Because... In media, we have processes around that sort of thing. They're taken away and assessed. Is it serious? Is it not? Is this something we need to... This is a whole other show, call the police about. How is it dealt with on the tour? Oh, yeah, you get a lot. Oh, oh many, many multiple a day. And then your friends and family who are connected to your Instagram or social media accounts, they get them too. What? Oh, yeah. But Has uh, your partner look, you can, ever you... got... Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But and then and then you, well, you can you report it to the ATP that not much happens there, because they're getting so many, and then you report it to you know whether it was an Instagram or Twitter or whoever the authoritative figure is there, and most of the time that just goes through the keeper. Oh, we've done a review and nothing came of it. But I think the players now they just accept it. It's fine. Oh, it's fine to get death threats I hear where you're coming uh, from and I serious. think I know but it's this is crazy like and I totally get and often at work we will just let stuff go run over us you've got to be like water off a duck's back and we get that any of us in this industry will have stuff like that happen but that your partner is being targeted or your family they're seeking out your closest humans in your life to do that yeah, but I think it's just part and parcel with it now. I think it's just been accepted. That's the world we live in. Um, yeah, a lot of keyboard warriors out there. But on face value, yeah, okay, I lost one. I should have won it. I had a match point. 
you know, I'm disappointed, whatever. But a lot of these people don't understand that there's a lot of external. I think I think they play computer games, and you know, in their mum's basement. No, but they live in dreamland. You know, they think that everything works like that. You you could be having an off day. There could be stuff going on in your personal life that has nothing to do with tennis, but can really affect you when you go out on the court. Okay, well, let's look ahead to the quarterfinal where Ukrainian star Marta Kostyuk is taking on one of the hottest players in the women's draw right now, the reigning US Open champion Coco Goff. Our friends at the AO Show previewed that matchup. I think both players have taken several new steps in their careers since then. Golf, most notably, winning the US Open. She comes in this time as a Grand Slam champion. And she's always had the head game, Coco Golf. I think even before she had the groundwork, she had that incredible composure. That was always the standout for Golf with me. On the other side of the net, you have Kostyuk. To me, she's kind of like the female version of Andre Rublev. Yes. They will have those moments between points, but you can't really take a lot from that actually moving into the points because they're able to isolate that, uh, isolate that, I should say, and still play their game. And I think Kostuk has the game to make this an interesting match. She's not just a big hitter. She can insert the drop shot. She's actually a pretty good reader of the game. And lest we forget, as a 15-year-old, she did make the third round of the Australian Open in years gone by. So there are very interesting dimensions to this matchup. But Goff, for me, it's so impressive how she settled into her role as a top player already. And she, even at 19, she's taken her time to get there she's built the blocks over the last year she started to pick up the big wins and I think in her wins so far even though she's not played a a really top player she's been tested by a variety of game styles she's come through come through Magdalena Freck I believe she's come through Alicia Parks who uh, Alicia Parks let me pronounce her name right absolutely rips the ball so she's seen a lot of different shots coming at her I just wonder what costume can offer her that's different to what she's come through already I think it's a really good summary I think Kostyuk, having watched her play in Australia a fair bit over the last month, I think Abigail rightly points out, is a phenomenal athlete, is a very impressive athlete. And we know clearly how athletic golf is from a a physicality and athleticism perspective. So two terrific athletes going at it. I'd give the edge on firepower to golf. There you have it. To hear more of that conversation, you can go to the official podcast of the Australian Open, the AO Show. It's day 10. It's quarterfinal day, guys. Are you seeing any likely upsets in today's quarterfinal lineup? Well, look, out of the four quarterfinals on court today, I think the the most interesting match for me is the Djokovic Fritz matchup. Fritz has that firepower from the back of the court. He's got a massive serve. He's got a really good two-handed backhand. I thought he was incredibly impressive against Tsitsipas. If you look at the numbers, a high winner count, very low unforced error count. My one concern for Taylor Fritz in that one is I think that was one of the the matches he's the best matches he's played in the last 12 months. And every now and again, a couple of times a year, you go out on the court and you just have one of those days where you're seeing the tennis ball as if it's a watermelon. Everything feels good. The timing feels good. The movement feels good. It's extremely hard to replicate that two days in a row. I've never been able to do it. Um, It's just when the stars align and things work out, it it feels like you can't miss out there. And I think he had one of those days against Tsitsipas. I'm unsure if he can do it back-to-back. But the way he was playing in that match, if he brought that type of form, then it could be a real test for, for Novak because we've seen Fritz here at this tournament test Novak before. 
in a massive, I think it was a five-set encounter. Um, so he's definitely got the firepower. He's won Indian Wells before, so he's lifted some big titles before. And out of those four, I still think, obviously, Djokovic wins. But out of those four quarterfinals, I think that's the most intriguing matchup for me today. What about you, J.A.? Yeah, I no, absolutely agree. He, he's got a big enough game that he can challenge. I think the thoughts that Novak would have, and it's very hard to think how the all-time great thinks, is that he could weather a storm. If, if Taylor played really well for a set or two, he could weather the storm, wear him down, and, and over five sets, uh, he has the advantage of everyone. I think Taylor looks to me as not the best five-set player, uh, but his form here last year wasn't, wasn't great, but... Uh, Against Tsitsipas, he was absolutely at his peak and uh, and played beautifully well well into the match, didn't show any signs of fatigue. So he comes in with confidence, he comes in with that assurance that he thinks he can go the distance, and it's a great opportunity for him to, to beat the world's greatest player. I also like the day time slot for Taylor Fritz. It's going to be warm today. It looks like it's 31 degrees. I checked the weather before coming in here. We all know Melbourne weather can change a lot. <laughs> Says the Queenslander. Oh, it's it's crazy. Yesterday was cold at the Australian Open for the first time ever and for an Irish girl to be complaining about the cold. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the weather changes, but it looks like it's going to be 30, 31 degrees. That's going to be in that daytime time slot. That's going to be really fast conditions. And I think that that actually suits Taylor Fritz. Absolutely. Yeah, that's another a real factor because... Uh, Novak's played so many of his matches at night where it is heavy. It gives him a bit more margin for error, so the ball will be flying. And uh, uh, Fritz's shots will have that much more penetration because of the speed through the air. Whatever happens, you can hear it all on the ABC Listen app. Go and press the tennis button and we'll be back here tomorrow to assess all of the action and... To finish the pub, we can confirm that the court looks perfectly fixed. You can't even see any evidence of that little patch-up job they did earlier, which is lucky because they're doing tours and no one needs to see them sewing up the court. It is looking beautiful. Cannot wait for day 10. We're back on the ABC Tennis Podcast tomorrow.